0: a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the
1: show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 49th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is the X factors that set the best leaders apart. I'm joined by Adam Bryant, the co author, along with former Amgen CEO Kevin Scherer, of the CEO test Master the Challenges That Make or Break All Leaders. The publisher is Harvard Business Review Press. Adam is managing director of Merck Company, a leadership development and mentoring firm. Before them, Before then, Adam was a journalist for 30 years, including at the New York Times, where he authored the Corner Office column. In addition, Adam is also a teacher, speaker, and frequent contributor on CNBC. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, briefly, what is this book about?
0: It's really captured in the subtitle, what are the challenges that make or break all leaders? And Kevin and I simplified the uh, sprawling leadership field to identify the seven core challenges that really help explain why leaders at all levels succeed or fail in their roles. And we provide a a pretty intensely practical playbook uh, on how to navigate those challenges, not just identifying them.
1: Okay. So before you were doing this book, you were, of course, um, doing those corner office columns, Uh, more than 600 interviews. That's quite a few CEOs and other leaders. Were there some that particularly stood out? I assume there's some of the people who appeared in this book?
0: Certainly, um, I enjoyed all the conversations. Learned a lot from everybody. One of the phenomenons that I discovered over time is that the interviews that I did um, are in many ways are sort of like Rorschach tests or classic inkblots. I, I I realized over time that if I showed the same interview to twenty different people, uh, I would get twenty different reactions, ranging from I really like this person to I don't. There's something about this person I don't like, sure. um, and which tells you a lot about leadership as well. So certainly. For for me, the experience of interviewing the CEOs—I was a manager myself. They were a bit like free therapy sessions for me. Um, but there were some people that I met who, in many ways, I felt like, boy, this person is really kind of like a mirror to me in the same, in the sense of their value system or how they think about managing and leading people.
1: And certainly, not all CEOs welcome the press. So I imagine some were more open, and maybe some were much more guarded. Not really, because shortly
0: after I started the series at the New York Times, um, it, it it became kind of like this club that people wanted to get into. Ah, so, okay. it, it, you know, I'm not exaggerating. I got between seven and 10 pitches from PR people every ah. single day. So <laughs> so I, I was in, I was kind of like the bouncer at the door and could decide who gets in. And And because of that, um, I had a lot of leverage to say, look, you know, these are the ground rules. And if your person isn't going to be open, honest, and candid and answer my questions, then we shouldn't do this because I'm not going to run the interview.
1: Okay. So in the title we have for today's episode, you cite the best leaders. Um, how does one manage to get at defining best leaders? I say that in part because in your book, you make a point to say, we're going to take a more qualitative approach. So there's not a lot of charts and graphs and so forth in the book. How do you get to a standard for best leaders? Is it intuitive in this case? Well, I think
0: it's important to have good, you know, sort of useful frameworks for for discussing leadership because leadership is is just one of those topics that, in many ways, is about life and you know personal leadership and authentic leadership. So we wanted to be really clear about um, what our book was about and what it was not about because one of the things that I've come to appreciate over the time is that you over time is that you can say anything about leadership and you're probably gonna be right at some level, you know, okay. just fill in, yeah. the, fill in the sentence, you know, leadership is all about dot, dot, dot. and. Almost anything that you say is probably going to be a right answer. And, you know, but to Kevin and I, you know, we sort of realized just because something isn't wrong doesn't mean it's an insight. So that's why I think X Factors is such a useful framework for talking about leadership because a lot of leadership books get into, you know, what I consider like table stakes. Of effective leadership, um, just being a senior executive, you've got to have a certain amount of presence. You've got to be a strategic thinker. You got to be a good communicator. So we said, let's set aside all those things and then look through the lens of you know this question of why do people succeed or fail in these roles? I mean, the average tenure of CEOs is about five years. Um, yep. And and so to ask like why do people struggle in these roles and then to to sort of flip the lens a bit rather than studying CEOs about what makes them special you know instead asking what are the leadership challenges that CEOs face that all leaders face maybe the intensity and the breadth and the complexity is a bit greater for CEOs. But what, what are the same? Um, and with that lens, we took, you know, our our kind of 300 things on the whiteboard and distilled it down to these seven core challenges. And again, wanted to go that extra step. It's one thing to identify them. It's another thing to say, and here is how to do them based on the experience of all these, you know, veteran leaders.
1: Yeah, no, and I, I've read a lot of books on leadership. There are a lot of books out there. This is far better than the vast majority of those, I think, because You know, certainly Kevin's own experiences was a nice counterweight to wandering off in all directions. Uh, All the columns that you had written, that's nice background material that I'm sure fed into this book. Um, You know, I think it really admirably achieved the goals you were after. One of the chapters I really liked was on corporate culture, which can be quite an amorphous term and lead to uh, lots of wandering statements and platitudes. It seemed to me that in that chapter, Jeff Lawson of Twillo really helped to anchor it based on his own personal commitment to to making corporate culture mean something in terms of how the company functions. Is that true?
0: exactly? Yeah, Jeff is one of the most thoughtful leaders that I've ever met uh, about culture, and um, there's just so many great stories and insights that he that he had. And, and to me, ultimately, the way to take this sort of you know sprawling topic of culture is everything uh, has to be funneled through the prism of like. Does it feel real? Do you make it real? Because so many, I mean, let's talk about the bad movie version and the good movie version, right? (laughs) The, the, The bad movie version is that, you know, most companies, they say, we need some value. So they get, you know, but they they do the whiteboard exercise at the offsite and they come up with all these, you know, excellence and customer centricity and all that. Um, and then they, they make posters, the laminated wallet cards, and then they never talk about them again. Um, and the really bad movie version of that is that there are the stated values, but then there's the proverbial high performing jerks who, you know, behave in ways that directly contradict the values and they get promoted. And that makes everybody cynical. Right. So, and, and, for the most part, the values are never discussed. Um, You know, I when I'm teaching exec ed classes, I often ask the the executives in the room how many people know their company's values, and it's very rare that more than like 40% of the hands go up. So the good movie version is that you, you go through that exercise, and, and it's not just sort of empty words. You can keep sort of double and triple clicking about what these words mean and what they look like in action and the stories behind them and how they tie back to... Maybe it's the founder's personal story and the principles on which the company was built. But then the whole point is that at every single touch point in the employee experience, the values are discussed, the reinforced, whether it's in hiring, onboarding, firing, the quarterly annual awards, the stories that people tell on stage. Uh, It just goes on and on and on so that people really come to understand it as, oh, the, these are real here um and if you want to get ahead you have to embody them um and if you want to get fired uh you should directly contradict them and the companies that get it right it's really powerful but for a lot of companies they they just it's kind of a half measure and it it it, 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 it there's so much missed opportunity there
1: yeah no i was at a major company i could not Possibly quote <laughs> what the corporate values were. And I was the this, this speechwriter for the CEO. So, you know, surely I should have known them, but, uh, that they were meaningless and and irrelevant to whatever thing I did. So in that chapter, in fact, you mentioned the term cultural fal- culture falcons, which is great. Which is, of course, those leaders who actually do get dismissed potentially because they are violating and ignoring those values. I, I love that term, yeah. um, and, and I loved your suggestion uh, that leaders' bonuses should actually be tied to making sure they're not contradicting. These values and instead enacting them. So that was a really a standout chapter for me. When we had a prelim call, um, I had told you that many years ago. And the journalists who worked on that probably all got fired by the Wall Street Journal because the advertisers didn't like it. But they did a report card on CEOs, the you know Fortune 500, and there was a lot of Bs and Cs, and more Ds and Fs than As. Why is this job job so tough? Why is it a five year tenure?
0: And it's getting tougher, I got to say. I mean, you know, CEO, I think... Uh, stands as much for you know chief everything officer as chief executive i mean you're just responsible for everything and um you know i've met ceos who are adding like chief diversity officer to their title of ceo you have to be uh you know thoughtful about esg and this this whole era of of shareholder capitalism where you just really had to worry about the the big loud voices and maybe some institutional investors and and it has shifted fully and i think uh, definitively to stakeholder capitalism, where everybody in the sort of company's ecosystem feels like they should have a, a voice and a vote in terms of the company's policies, who it does business with. Um, and and so the, the list of responsibilities and things that a CEO has to be concerned about uh, and feel responsible for, Grows longer and longer. That said, it's not an impossible job. I mean, if if you didn't meet any CEOs that lasted longer than five years, you could just sort (laughs) of say, "Well, it's an impossible job." But but the best ones go on to do it for you know ten years a you know dozen years, fifteen years, and some of them do it well. And so we really tried to you know use that as kind of the case studies. Like again, why? And and it sounds like a simple question, but uh, uh, there aren't many leadership books that that look at CEOs through that prism. I mean, you can find books on why CEOs fail. You can find case studies of why they succeed, but what are the breakpoints? And it's not yeah. that you have to score a perfect 10 on all seven tests, but there has to be a threshold level of competence. You have to be at least a five on all of them. And every leader is going to be a bit, you know, lumpy compared to others, right? Some people have uh, different strengths compared to others.
1: Yeah, well, I think I often look at what was their background. I mean, it's not all that often they have people coming out of marketing or sales. Uh, certainly, customer service is extremely rare uh, as the stepping stone to being the CEO. You know, the ones I worry about sometimes, admittedly, are the ones that come from legal or from manufacturing if they don't have the human touch because this is leadership after all. What are some platitudes about leadership you think are maybe the most off base or the most trite? There must be a few uh, fish in the barrel we could shoot here.
0: Yeah, you know, I I think it's just this idea that people try to um, uh, oversimplify leadership by just saying, you know, the single most important thing about leadership is X, right? (laughs) And it could be communication. And um, I, I think just because leadership is so hard, people definitely gravitate towards those shorthands, right? It, it's wonderful clickbait um, because it's like wow, <laughs> sure. someone's cracked the code sorry cracked the code on leadership. but the, you know I've spent about a dozen years in this space and, and listened to a lot of leaders talk uh, you know share their advice. And, and one of the things that strikes me is just that, that the, the field is filled with contradictions. and if you're a relatively young leader trying to figure it out, every time you turn around, you're getting kind of whipsawed. It's like lead from the front, lead from the back, (laughs) you know, never let them see you sweat. You got to be confident, but no, no, you got to show vulnerability. Um, And you've got to create a sense of urgency while also being patient. And to me, like that's sort of the trap that the, that this field falls into. Um, And to me, the way in the last chapter of the book about the inner game of leadership, the way we try and resolve all those contradictions is to just say, it's not an or proposition, it's an and proposition. As a leader, you know, you have to be compassionate and demanding. And and all the things that are hard about leadership are hard because they are paradoxes. And once you understand that and realize that there's a balance between point between those forces and you need to kind of flex, depending on the moment, that just a lot of the leaders we work with in our firm, it's that sort of this calming moment for them. It's like, okay, now I can sort of quiet all that noise in my head because otherwise you get into this trap. It's like that golf expression of, you know, paralysis by analysis. Like if you're trying to hold 50 things in your head while you're swinging a golf club, it's not going to end well. And the same is true with leadership.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. That actually was my second favorite chapter, the seventh one on the the inner qualities of oh, leisure. and uh, and you mentioned a number of paradoxes already. Uh, is was there one that really stood out for you as as the most fun to write about, or what you thought was maybe the most crucial or intriguing in in
0: terms of the paradoxes?
1: Yeah, yeah, the paradoxes that were in that seventh test.
0: Yeah, you know, I've just seen so. Many leaders struggle, and, and I think the one that feels particularly timely is this, you know, if we think back on the, the year we've just lived through um, and how that has changed leadership for me in many profound ways is just this notion of like, how do you be compassionate while also being demanding and holding people accountable? Right. And and I think a lot of leaders have struggled because they recognize everybody's at home. They're dealing with all sorts of stresses, you know, the kids, parents, health concerns like you name it. Uh, And to on the one hand, show up as human and understanding, and compassionate, yet at the same time, you know, to take advantage, to to see this pandemic as an opportunity, not just a crisis that you need to recover from, but as an actual opportunity. There are those moments where you you need to say, everybody, I need your very best right now. Um, and to me, that, that that's kind of a a, a very uh, uh, profound and uh, example that's brought into sharp relief by the pandemic.
1: Sure, and you can't go to that well all the time, but if you choose the right moments, yeah, to summon them in that way. Um, I'm curious, is there, you know, with stock prices, there's so many ways in which they get manipulated, their stock buybacks and so forth. Have you ever found some standard that you think can help us evaluate externally uh, good leaders? I mean, I think this book gets very intimate. I think that's its strength. But if we step back a step, is there a way for outsiders to look at CEOs and say, Ah, this is likely to be a good one, and, and there's some ways to, to measure that on a performance basis.
0: Yeah, and I guess it depends what you consider a good one. I mean, if you're an investor, you don't really care about anything sure. else, right?
1: <laughs> yes, yes, there's that.
0: Uh, You know, and, and, and generally, uh, I think CEOs, you know, people have. Have since there was a correlation between stock performance and their IQ, right? Like if the stock is going up, they're brilliant, and and if it's going (laughs) down, they're they're not. Um, And you know, I wrote a lot about CEOs as a business reporter before I launched Corner Office, um, and it, it always struck me. And and I I also have come to believe that you can be a good CEO and not a good leader, right? A good CEO. I mean, there's a lot of bad bosses out there. There's a lot of you know, phone throwers, um, yellers, uh, people who are abusive to their employees, who can be successful in the short term and maybe even the long term. Um, but I also think that, you know, you, if you invest in people and care about people and care about all the things of leadership, then it becomes, well, how much better could the company's performance have been have uh, had you done that? So, um, it, it, you know, generally the business world is more comfortable with numbers they can put on a spreadsheet. And that's why you get the stock performance as a proxy for IQ. But I, I'm, I'm much more of a believer in kind of accumulated wisdom over a lifetime. And I've interviewed CEOs who've been through bankruptcy, who've been on the brink of bankruptcy, um, and the profound lessons that they've learned from that, the wisdom they've gained, um, I just think is immeasurable. But You know, in the business world, it's like they might be viewed as a failure, whereas, you know, once after I talked to them, if I said, I would bet on you because you've got some battle scars, right?
1: Well, I I like your more human approach, certainly, but uh, I do remember being asked by USA Today, uh, it was actually a front page article in the money section where I went through and facially coded a bunch of CEOs. And one of them who was very successful and won't name, uh, I had exactly the same reaction you just mentioned a moment ago. I thought this person was tremendously successful, but how much more successful could they have been if chances were, based on what I saw, which was a lot of anger and disgust in their face, they'd been a little bit more gentle yeah. with some staff. I had to imagine the turnover churn was was significant over time. Yeah, and and
0: I have to say, I mean, just the, the older I get, I, I, I am one of those people who – uh, is a fan of sentences that begin with "There's only two kinds of people," and there's you know, <laughs> an, an actual insight at the end of it. Um, and and people have talked about servant leadership for 50 years now since that expression was first coined. And 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 I I, I like the impulse behind it, uh, but I've in my experience, I generally put leaders into one of two camps, which is you know they are either selfless or self centered. And you know, servant leadership to me, it's I I like the spirit of it, but at at some level, every you know, if you're a CEO, you're always serving some somebody, as Bob Dylan reminded us, right? So I think it's more specific to categorize leaders as selfless or self-centered. And I think that's one of those things you just feel at your your gut level. I mean, there are there are managers and leaders who say, Um, you know, all these people uh, uh, under me are here to help me, uh, you know, uh, realize my ambitions personally. They're just sort of assets to help me. And I think selfless leaders sort of say, I see a trajectory for your growth and development. I'm here to help you do that. And, And just sort of lifting the organization together. And to me, it's kind of binary. And I think you know, for everybody who's listening to our conversation, you know, think back to all the bosses that you've worked for. And I think you can put them in one of those two camps pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, no, on average, I guess about 25% of all bosses, uh, you know, are bullies. And that's what the research suggests. And in my case, I would say 40% of the bosses I had before I started my own company that way. Uh, My father-in-law, who's a retired president of American Hospital Supplies, actually really believed in the term servant leadership back in the day when it came in. And one of my favorite stories is uh, a couple of his lieutenants came back and said, Oh, we, we won the deal with the other company. And he said, go back and renegotiate. And they were stunned. And they said, why didn't you hear us? We, we, we won the negotiation. And he said, yes, but if we won, that means they lost. And once they realize they lost, you know, the Alliance isn't going to hold up very well. Right. Or maybe I start to dig into the details. And I realized that while you're telling me you won, that actually maybe you did lose. And uh, and I'm going to come back to you with that detail. Right. So uh, why don't you revisit this whole thing? And that was really his spirit. And he came out of sales, and I think he had that uh, you know attitude. That he had to make sure what was happening across the table for the other party. Yeah. And and I, and I think it really it really helped him. Yeah. Um, another place I wanted to go to in the book is you talk about trying to coach people, and that some CEOs have the courage to help people improve, and, and some it just seems like it's an away game for them. Um, anything more you can say about about that concept?
0: Yeah, I, I just think the uh, when leaders, CEOs in this context are, are leading a team, it, part of it is the story they tell themselves about what their role is on the team. Um, and I'd, I've seen too often leaders almost take this passive role. You know, They say, well, I have my team. Um, and it's almost like they don't take responsibility for the team. They'll sometimes sort of, you know, Wonder it's like why is my team kind of dysfunctional? Like why aren't they getting along better? And instead of looking in the mirror and realizing that they're setting the tone, um, and so you, you keep going back to these core questions of you know, and one of them for me in the context of team is what is the leader's role on the team. Um, you know, and you, it, it is a long list. It, you've got to set the agenda. You've got to set the tone to make sure that you don't have this kind of Game of Thrones vibe on the team where everybody's trying to just take each other down. But I also it goes back to this idea of like it is your role as a coach to be to be developing people, to be clear about what good looks like. And in an objective way, so everybody understands it rather than just, you know, I like this person because we went to the same college Um, and but but that takes a lot of work and effort. And I think sometimes CEOs, when they're just overwhelmed by their their schedule, which is always getting filled up by everybody around them. That they just default to this more passive role. I mean, I've I've heard of too many situations where the leadership team meeting, there isn't much of agenda or it's just a series of kind of report outs from the direct yep. reports to the CEO while everybody's just kind of glancing at their phone under the table.
1: Yeah. Well, your your co-author is not on this conversation, but one of the things I really loved was when Kevin shared in the book that uh, one of his best buddies ended up being the person in charge of HR who would close the door, come into the office and say, uh, it's another instance, Kevin, where your fastball got away from you. Yeah, yes, yeah, And it. it just seemed like it, it was accountability, but in a nice way, an encouraging way. Uh, and I, I, think Kevin really benefited from that relationship. That's what my takeaway was.
0: Yeah. And, and having not only that in that case his uh, his CHRO Brian to tell him those things, but just to, to make sure that you have somebody on your team, not just one person who can close the door and say, you know, just be totally honest with you because yeah. o- otherwise, you know, it, it's, it's, there's everybody has an agenda with the CEO generally, right? It's like two thumbs up boss. Everything's great. You don't want to tell you bad news, and they're kind of working you in some ways.
1: Yeah. No, my father was an executive at the 3M company. He said, the higher I got up in the food chain, the more filtered the information that came to me, and yet the decisions I was supposed to make on behalf of the company were ever more important so I went to it with a paucity of information, unless I dug it out myself or could find those people who were willing to be candid about it. Right,
0: and uh, and I'll just final point on that. To me, it's it's captured wonderfully in that expression. You know, be careful how funny your jokes become as you move up. Right, just like you know, and and anybody who's been in a corporate setting has been in those meetings where the boss tells a not so funny joke and everybody laughs at it like you know they were Dave Chappelle or something.
1: Yeah, no, I remember that I was actually in the movie recently about Stalin. Uh, because he would tell us jokes, especially as he got drunker and drunker in the evening and all the comrades had to laugh along because otherwise you might be dead by the morning. Right, right. Yeah. So he was a very funny man, apparently, but uh, exactly. mostly given context. So maybe two last questions here. One is, you know, setting aside the, the stock performance as an indication of who's the best leader struck me as another place one could possibly go. It's maybe a bit more objective and a little bit less funny money. Is MA activity because by most accounts, MA does not work a lot, very well. I'm talking about mergers and acquisitions, of course, uh, that failure rates can reach as high as maybe 65, 75%. What is it in a good leader that would let them, in your estimation, move through M&A successfully?
0: I, I think a, a big part of it is this culture, right? And just being very clear and intentional about those conversations about cultures when they move when companies merge or are acquired because you know, I, I often put things in the context of sort of tribal dynamics, right? And, you you know, if you're trying to merge two tribes that have their um, their sort of norms of behavior, that's really difficult. Um, but I, I think the best leaders can do it by talking about the best qualities and maybe having a reset and coming up with new values. Um, I, I think that's a big part of it. You know, I met the point, you know, I'm 58 and you sort of realize the um, – uh the importance of some key lessons and i I think just a general rule for life is it's often it's not what you say it's how you say it and if you you know rather than the the business world loves to frame things in terms of like conquest right like this company is acquired and taken over and all that and and you really have to change the spirit of that narrative to to shift it to look you know it's amazing to have you on the team and we're going to accomplish all these great things together and just and just driving that narrative. Um, And I also go back to, I mean, Warren Buffett came up with that wonderful phrase about institutional imperative. And, you know, it sort of goes back to like, what was the point of the, what was the driving force of the merger in the first place? Right. Um, And just being clear about the, 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 what you want to achieve rather than just all the momentum that gets driven by investment bankers and the like.
1: Yeah, no. This whole conquest thing. I mean, I, I once did a project where I interviewed employees after mergers and acquisitions, and those who felt like they were acquired and vanquished and on the short end of the stick. I mean, there was there was pain in their voice. There was this yelp, uh, like a captured animal. It was it was it was really painful to to listen to some of those interviews and go through them. Yeah. One last question: um, Trust is often called, of course, the emotion of business. What have you found from your your columns, from this book? How does a leader best uh, ensure that trust is there? And what are the violations that are maybe hardest to come back from?
0: Sure. To me, trust is, it starts with making sure that there is no sliver of daylight between what you say and what you do. Um, Because I I think leaders need to appreciate that employees will spot that from a mile away, right? They're much more perceptive up than they are down up in terms of like authority figures so that you're always being watched. And if there's the slightest gap, um, between, you know, words and action, people are going to notice that and they're going to remember it and you're going to lose points for that. Um, so I think it's just that incredible consistency, um, ideally being predictable at some level, uh, to me, that's, that's really key to it. Um, and, and, Just giving people a sense that, you know, in many ways, your actions are based on a a bedrock of personal values that you're you're you lead the way you do, not just because it makes sense from a business point of view, but you lead the way you do because of your upbringing and the and the core values that are non-negotiables for for you. I mean words like authenticity get thrown a lot around in the business world. And I think it's always good to sort of double click and say, well, what does that mean? And and, and I think think to me, that's what it means. It's like people are really authentic. It's like, you know what makes them tick and you know that in their mind, like they've got a lot of non-negotiables in terms of like, you know, just lines they won't cross in terms of how they interact with people, how they run the business. And then once you have that, if you have a leader like that, you can sort of relax a little bit and focus more on the work rather than trying to figure out, you know, what color is the mood ring today?
1: No, no, I, I love that answer. And I think you're very right about the how observant uh, the employees are, of those higher up in the food chain. Uh, in the book, uh, The Ape in the Corner Office, and we're, of course, very much according to DNA like chimpanzees, they found in studies that chimpanzees will forego food for an uninterrupted view of the leader because huh. knowing the leader's character personality affect on that day is vital to their survival and how they how they're going to function together as a team wow so that's a great good insight. stuff yeah yeah so i want to thank you adam so much for being on the show today uh this has been dan hill's eq spotlight episode number 49 the x factors that set the best leaders apart my guest, Adam Bryant, he's the co-author of the CEO test, Master the Challenges That Make or Break All Leaders. If you enjoyed today's show, please get a rating or review on iTunes. You can check out other episodes at my company's website, the obligatory three Ws, sensorylogic.com. You can go to the New Books Network, where the podcast is listed under their special series programs. Finally, I like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In light of today's topic, I chose this quote by Dwight E. Eisenhower, our former president, who said, leadership is the art of getting someone else to do something you want done because he wants to do it. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.